Uh, some of you may have heard of the Do Good app. My friend Kevin invented it. You can get it for free, and it reminds you every day to do something good. All sorts of different things, very simple, and you can check it off if you've done it. Or you can say, I can't do that thing today, give me a new one. And it'll switch it out depending on where you are and what you're doing. Today, here is my challenge. Uh, it said, give someone a compliment. So I just want to say, Boulder Church, thank you for being amazing for being welcoming and thoughtful and courageous and kind. Thank you for simply being who you are. You make my life a beautiful thing. Thank you for being a part of it. I want to tell you a story. We're big on stories around here. And in 2002, at the Salt Lake City Winter Olympics, an Australian skater by the name of Stephen Bradbury had fought to be in the men's 1,000-meter short track speed skating final. This was the race for the gold medal with the U.S.'s gold, well, best skater. I must say, ooh, we got clunking. This is fun. Let's do an experiment. Tighten it. No, we're not better. It's the antenna. Every time I touch the antenna, it goes crazy. All the way in. Uh, have we got a handheld? Perfect. Team to the rescue. You want to try it? All right, so seat to be. Okay. <laughs> Is that funny, Sami? Okay, I think let's go with handheld. I know. It is amusing. All right. We're better. No popping. Darn, it was like popcorn. Woo! team. All right. So Stephen Bradbury, 2002 Olympics. He's in the men's final for the speed skating 1,000 meters. He is racing against Apollo Anton Ono, the U.S. golden boy, who we were sure was going to beat out China, who was the second favorite. Now, Bradbury was a relatively unknown skater, 
but he had fought really hard to be in the Olympics at Salt Lake City. He had been injured in 1996, and that injury had required over 100 stitches in his leg, and he had broken his neck in 2000. So in 2002, he arrives at the games having survived some major injuries and skating at the front of his field. And he is lined up with the group of men and the starting gun echoes in the arena with nine laps to go around the short track. There's a little battle between Apollo Ono from the US and Li Jiajun from China. They're in the front and it seems like the field is set. Apollo will win gold, China will win silver with Li Jiajun as their representative. In the final lap, Ono and Jiajun are kind of elbowing each other. They collide and wipe out. They head skidding across the ice for the mats and while they fall, they knock out Korea and Canada. The lone skater at the back of the pack was Stephen Bradbury. And he skated across the finish line to Australia's first ever Olympic gold medal. He was not expected to win, and he won in a completely mind-boggling manner. He went around the track like that with his mouth agape and his hands kind of flailing for a couple rounds until he realized, like, I, re I really won. I didn't deserve it, <laughs> but I really won. Yay! First ever winter gold medal for the country of Australia. Now, we are going to look at some things that are kind of like Stephen's experience, that are a little mind-boggling and a little unbelievable. We've been going through Luke chapter 1, and I have found this book to be amazingly rich, and I'm really enjoying digging into this chapter. Have you guys enjoyed this series so far? Yeah, it's been really, really wonderful. So we're going to talk again about a birth. We've talked about announcements of birth over the last couple weeks, and this is again about a birth, but not the expected birth. Last week we talked about the announcement to Mary that Jesus would come, but this is not the birth of Jesus. No, Luke kind of bounces back and forth in the narrative between Jesus and John. So today we're back at John and the birth of John, and the results though foretold, seem a little unexpected. So we're going to take a deep dive again, and thank you, Vern, for reading for us. Verses 57 to 66 of Luke chapter 1. If you have a Bible, I want you to pull it out. And we're going to dive deep and look at three themes again this week. We're going to look at a theme of celebration, a theme of confusion, and a theme of curiosity. Will you pray with me as we dig? God, we are here this morning to encounter you afresh in the word. We have had some interesting things happen with our technology this morning, but God, we are more interested in what you will do here among us. So we invite you to be here, and we ask, Lord, that you help us to be aware of your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we know from our past exploration of Luke that Elizabeth is expecting a baby. She hid out for five months. She's come out of, of hiding, and she's very visibly pregnant. She is beyond childbearing years, 
but she is pregnant. And we know that the gestation, Pastor Jay, thank you very much, for a human baby is nine months or 40 weeks. So here today we find ourselves back in verse 57 of Luke chapter 1. And I want to invite you to read along with me. Again, Luke 1, verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. As predicted by Gabriel to Zechariah, Elizabeth birthed a baby boy. Now, there was no way to tell gender back then. There are wives' tales, right? If you're carrying the baby high, it's a little girl. If you're carrying low, it's a little boy. If you're carrying out front, there's all sorts of wives' tales to try and predict the gender of a baby. But back then, there were no fancy blood tests, and there were no ultrasounds that could have told you the gender of the baby. All Elizabeth would have known was that she was expecting. Now, because I like weird facts... The ultrasound was first used in 1956 in Glasgow, Scotland to determine the gender of a baby. It didn't become popular in the U.S. until the 70s, and I was born in 79, and my mom and dad didn't have a clue what I was. They were just happy I arrived. Right, mom, dad? I bet they were happy I arrived. So Elizabeth had nine months of waiting to find out if the complete prophecy would be true. She knew she was expecting, but she didn't have the confirmation that what Zechariah had heard from Gabriel was accurate. She only had half of the equation she was expecting. But to have a baby boy as predicted, well, now we start to stumble into miracle territory because you just couldn't know ahead of time. And yet here he is, a baby, a boy born to Elizabeth and Zechariah. It's just a subtle reminder to us that God keeps his word. In Luke 1.13, right, if we pop up to verse 13 there, Zechariah receives the promise from Gabriel. The angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall name him John. And then down here in 57... We drop back to where we are. We see the promise come to fruition. When God makes a promise, he keeps it. So Elizabeth births a boy, and then something fascinating happens. The neighborhood comes out to celebrate. They put out the balloons, they host the baby shower, they do all the things, they knit the blankets, they sew all the things, they bring casserole dishes. So read it with me in verse 58. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy on her, and they rejoiced with her. The birth of John was seen as God's blessing in the life of Elizabeth. I cannot imagine being as old as she was and having a baby. As, as Jared mentioned this morning, I was running around here chasing some of the kids who have decided that I am pokeable and have been poking me, so I've been chasing them. I'm tired. They're fast, right? And here's Elizabeth raising a baby. No sleeping at night, nursing, all of the things that come with baby life. But to be childless in her culture was sad. To be childless in a culture that says children are the inheritance from God, that women who do not have children are somehow incomplete, 
a culture that says family is passed through the mother, right? Judaism is a matrilineal society. We pass your heritage through your mother's side of the family. Your heritage is known through your mom. To have a baby, even when you're old, was seen as God blessing you. And so when a blessing of God is revealed, you get out there and you celebrate. You rejoice. It doesn't matter if you're the one who received the blessing. If you are the one who received the answer to prayer, if you are the one who got the miracle, when God shows up, we celebrate. When the promises of God come to pass, we rejoice with our family, with our friends, with our neighbors. We celebrate what God is doing in life. It matters only that God has shown up and you are choosing to honor his presence. Whatever that presence may appear as, the miracle, the baby, the job, the kindness, the healing, we show up and we honor God's presence by celebrating with the person who has the miracle or the blessing. Now to celebrate an act of God, we must first know about it. Elizabeth could not hide her pregnancy. People knew. Zechariah couldn't cover up his muteness. An act of God is not something we can cover up. Neither is the struggle that comes before the miracle. To share the pain, the addiction, the darkness, the despair of what we wrestle with is really hard. To share that with someone else means we have to trust someone with the darkest, most painful parts of ourselves. And because we're honest, sharing the pieces of our life in which we most need help is scary. To trust someone with that heaviness is really, really hard. And too many of us have had the pain of someone using what we share against us as a weapon rather than them taking it and carrying it to God and saying, help here. But if we don't share and we don't handle what is shared with us carefully, we will miss out on the joy of seeing God move. So when we have a miracle or an answer to prayer or something divine that happens in our lives, the people around us should know it because we have told them about the struggle before God sends the blessing. And when we see the power of God show up for someone else, we should be ready with confetti, with joy, with excitement, with balloons, anything that it takes to celebrate because we see God showing up in their life. Too often it seems that we get jealous of someone else's success or blessing or miracle. 
right? We, we see an amazing transformation. We see an amazing healing. We see something fantastic happen for someone. And we ask, why them? Why do they get this miracle? I've been praying. Why am I still waiting? Why did heaven open up and pour out its blessing for them and I am still here waiting? How could God bless them? Do you hear the jealousy? Or perhaps this, we become apathetic. We hear about a miracle or a healing or a, a baby arriving or whatever it is, a job, someone's addiction broken, and we think, oh, all right, and we move on without a second thought. And in the apathy or in the jealousy, we miss God. We miss his presence now, Luke is teaching us, he's teaching us so carefully and almost as an aside that we should celebrate one another's blessing. And when we celebrate someone else's blessing, we lose nothing. When we celebrate someone else's blessing, we lose nothing. Heaven doesn't run out of miracles. There is no limited supply of the grace of God. Instead, I truly believe we gain joy by sharing our blessings and the blessings of others because joy shared is joy multiplied. Joy shared is joy multiplied. Supporting another person's success won't ever dampen yours. We could easily exchange the word here the word success here for blessing or miracle, right? Supporting another person's blessing, supporting another person's miracle won't ever dampen yours. And because that is true, I want to ask you to do a little celebrating here with me this morning. Now, uh, it's going to get a little awkward. You guys ready for awkward? Uh-oh, you're sleeping. Are you ready for awkward? Yeah? Okay. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a minute and celebrate. Now, I know a lot of us here know each other. I'm still getting to meet you, so I'm still new at this. So some of you may feel really awkward like I do, and you may not be able to approach someone. But I want you to look around you for just a moment. And I want you to acknowledge that there are people here in this congregation who have had miracles happen recently who have seen the blessings of God poured out in their lives. We have someone in this congregation who two weeks ago was in brain surgery and is doing fine and thriving this week. We have seen miracles and blessings. So I want you to take some time, and we're going to just honor God's handiwork here among us, because I think if we practice it, we're more likely to put it into practice in our real life right? When we're not in a pew, when we're not with each other. So if you are joining us online, I'm not going to let you off the hook either. There may not be anybody around for you to hug or high five, but I want you to grab your phone and I want you to get ready to text someone. I have seen this miracle, this blessing, and I am celebrating that with you today. You are here 
you are employed, you have a child, you have a family, you have traveled, you have changed, the addiction in your life is broken, I want you to text that to someone if you're joining us online. If you're here in this congregation, I'm going to give you two minutes, okay? And what we're going to do is we're going to find someone. You can give them a high five. If they're comfortable with it, you can give them a hug, all right? But I want you to find somebody who, has, who you know has experienced a blessing of God in their life. Maybe it was really recently. Maybe it's something you've never congratulated someone for. And we're going to put two minutes up on the clock. It may crash our system again, so brace yourselves, all right? But we're going to put two minutes up on the clock, and we're going to let you go. So I want you to find someone, high-five them, hug them, whatever it is, but I want you to say, I have seen this blessing of God in your life, and I honor it. Okay? Go for it. Two minutes. All right. I love hearing you talking. There are so many things that God has done, and also, you haven't seen each other for a week, so I'm glad we could take this little minute to say hello again. As we know, joy shared is joy multiplied. And I hope that just this two minutes won't be enough for you to acknowledge God. And I hope that you will take this two minutes and carry it home with you. I hope that you will take the courage it takes to acknowledge God in someone else's life and carry it home and speak these things into someone else's life. Celebrate them. Celebrate what God is doing in their lives. Mr. Rogers, who's one of my heroes, says it very well. I believe appreciation is a holy thing. That when we look for what's best in a person, we are doing what God does all the time. So in loving and appreciating our neighbor, we are participating in something sacred. I hope that you will keep looking for the sacred in people's lives. Because acknowledging God around us keeps God alive in us. Blessings abound when I'm willing to celebrate them in others' lives as well as my own. And it may mean really awkward situations where I actually have to tell people what's going on in my life. And then I get to follow up with how God is answering. And the joy that will come when we celebrate each other, that will be joy. So like Elizabeth's neighbors and relatives, let's celebrate God's mercies with each other. It may mean we have to change how we handle other people because they will tell us their deepest, darkest struggles. And we need to interact as though we are carrying a precious treasure and wait for God to send the answer. Of course, celebrating when God does send the answer isn't the be-all and end-all. Now, sometimes you'll hear it say, especially in Christian circles, that we just need to praise God. In the belly of a whale, praise God. In the middle of the storm, praise God. When things are hard, praise God. And yes, God is worthy of our praise. But sometimes 
In the middle of the struggle, there's a lesson we need to learn. A skill, a habit, a boundary, a new way of understanding. And God isn't going to just take over our lives and do everything for us. God is not a dictator. He's not going to just take over. Salvation is handled, right? He took care of that part for us. Transformation is a joint effort. God and I together saying, hey, something's wrong here and I'd like some assistance. A, being aware of what it is, and B, being able to find the solution. The way forward isn't always clear, and despite our hubris, we don't know everything. I've met a few people who are convinced that they do know everything. They're hard to have over for dinner. And when we stumble with Elizabeth and Zechariah's neighbors into confusion, we see a miracle. We witness a blessing. We can struggle to put the pieces of the divine picture together. If you'll read with me again in Luke chapter 1, verses 59 to 63. Again, Luke chapter 1, verses 59 to 63. It says this. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, no. He shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by that name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. You ever seen something happen and you wonder? You look at it slightly askance? What's going on there? On the eighth day of his life, baby John is given a sign of an ancient covenant. He joins a long line of men who have had a symbol of a covenant with God carved into their skin. In Genesis 17, if you have your Bibles and you want to flip back to Genesis, the covenant is made with Abraham and God. Abraham gets a name change that day, right? He winds up as Abraham. He starts as Abram. And God said to Abraham in verse 9 of Genesis 17, God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you will be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money will be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. So John is part of this long line of history declaring that they are a part of a covenant with God with a physical symbol that is literally etched in their flesh. This is carried around by all the men of Israel. God tells Abraham if they refuse to be circumcised or they are not, they are no longer of my people, right? And the relatives and the neighbors are pretty determined at this ceremony to give the baby a name. And that was normal. On the eighth day, the baby would receive their name. They are determined to name the baby Zechariah 
Now, there is no biblical precedent for naming a child after its father. Now, we in Western cultures have adopted the ritual of naming babies after their fathers. Uh, we rarely see babies named after their mothers. And it has come down to us from history, whereas, let's say, Victor has a son. And Victor names his son Theo. And Theo has a son, and he names his son Victor. So he would name his baby after his father in order to honor his father. And it's transformed through the years to fathers naming sons after them. Basically, we've adopted something that is tradition and ritual from culture. And in the Bible, there is no record of this happening. Children were usually given a name that indicated the circumstances of their birth or a dream that their parents had for their character or a physical characteristic, right? Esau. Esau was born hairy, hair all over his body, and he is named Harry. His name, Esau, means hairy, right? Moses' son, Gershom, is a, is, he's born in a foreign land, and his name is Gershom. I'm a stranger here, right? His name indicates some of the circumstances around his birth. So when the family and friends are trying to name the baby Zechariah, it's already odd. It's out of line. It doesn't seem normal. It's not part of their culture. And they refuse to listen to Elizabeth, who says, no, his name shall be John. And they race to Zechariah for answers, which is funny because he can't talk. And, and they get the same answer. His name is John. Now, maybe you have tried this before. You want a cookie before dinner, and you run to mom. And you say, Mom, can I have a cookie? And she says, no. And you think, Dad's in the other room. Dad, Dad, can I have a cookie? And he says, no. Same sort of situation, right? The answer is the same across the, the board. Elizabeth and Zechariah have been given a divinely appointed name for the baby. And they know his name will be John. So when Zechariah reiterates his wife name, wife's name for the baby, it is then that the miracle for him occurs. His muteness disappears. And as friends and neighbors hear Zechariah's voice for the first time in nine months, they start to be afraid. Sometimes, if we're being honest, we know the way God should do things, right? Right? God should do things the way I, I want them to be done. And when it doesn't go the way we think it should, we can be afraid or worry. Now, a little known fact that you don't know about me yet, because we don't have anyone that I know of here in this church who's expecting, but um, I name all of my friends babies. I do. I name them all. Uh, so my friend had a baby, and I named him Takino. It means turkey in Italian because he was due in November. He surprised us all and arrived in October. Uh, Mortimer is going to be a big brother shortly to Hieronymus. It's going to be fantastic. Gudrid, I'm sure you would think she's the most adorable little girl like I think she is. Zadok is going to make his appearance in March of next year. Very excited there. Rosencrantz was born eight weeks ago, and Murgatroyd is three years old. Like I said, I name all my friends babies. 
Now, I spend hours planning these names, researching them, and not one of the names I have graciously given to these babies has been used on any birth certificate. You guys. Now, I have fun with these names, and sometimes I think that they should actually stick with the name because they're really great names. But this is what it's like when we think we know is what is best and we try to correct God. We can wind up with something a little bit crazy, and frankly, our feelings can be hurt when what we think should happen doesn't happen. I know what is best here. God, you should listen to me. You should name this baby Zechariah. But God had a different plan. Sometimes we think we know what treatment a person needs, like rehab or therapy. Sometimes we think we know which school a child must go to in order to succeed, or what career would be best for my friend, or I know what will save this person's marriage, or I know which fund they had best invest in. We are giving advice without first of all being directly involved, and without secondly asking for God to intervene. Knowing this was a miraculous pregnancy, you think that there would have been some dialogue, right? Elizabeth and Zechariah would have shared some messages with their friends, with their neighbors, and they would have already known before the arrival of the child, before the eighth day, when this amazing ceremonial, ceremonial, mm-hmm, brain. I'm going to need you guys to be a thesaurus for me today. Ceremony? Let's go with ceremony. There we go. When this symbolic ceremony would happen on the eighth day for baby John. But why was there no communication about it? Why didn't Elizabeth and Zechariah tell everybody what the angel has said about the baby? Confusion comes from a lack of clarity. We have the possibility of asking for more information. Whether we are receiving the miracle whether we are the blessed ones or not. Elizabeth and Zechariah had fragments of a bigger picture from God, and it seems that they didn't communicate it all the way, and it creates confusion as their neighbors neighbors and relatives show up. There's a saying that I love. I love to say it. You'll probably hear me say it regularly. Clarity creates calm, right? If I can be clear of my expectations, of my thoughts, of the things that God has relayed to me, it creates a calmness for every single one of us. When we ask questions, when we tell the story, when we share the thread woven by God through history, we become more and more clear and we become more and more calm. We become clear about the daily miracles in our lives, about the wonder of a God who plans ahead. Now, I am a planner. I appreciate that God plans ahead. Sometimes I wish he'd tell me a little bit more about the plan. But we also become very certain of the love that God has extended towards each of us. If we choose to act as though we know it all, as though we know more than God, or that those who have encountered God's messengers need our help, 
we run the risk of walking through life confused, frustrated, and agitated. It is experiencing God personally, learning from those who have had encounters with God that helps us journey through the times of confusion which will come because we don't always have all the information. And confusion is calmed by a growing understanding. We have the joy of wrestling with new and strange encounters because God is still moving today. He didn't stop with the birth of Jesus. He didn't stop with the birth of John. And I know there are miracles he is planning in our lives today. Now, I want to keep reading because the confusion didn't stop. It turns into a curiosity. And in Luke 1, verse 64 through 66, if you'll read with me there, Luke 1, 64 to 66, and immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loose. This is Zechariah. And he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors and all those things that were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of God was with him. Unexpected events without understanding can lead to fear, to speculation, and to assumption. But as we begin to know God and grow in our understanding of who he is, we will begin to lose the fear and move into the realm of curiosity, of wonder. Now, we don't know when children are born what they will grow up to be. In the case of John, there's a massive indication that something is going to be different about his life. The hand of God was with him, the text tells us, and people were watching John. How is God going to show up in this baby? What will he be? What will he do? What is going to happen with this baby? And it becomes about learning. It becomes about growing. It becomes about finding God in the everyday. When we see something different and something new, something profoundly divine happening, we are more likely to pay attention to the events. Buckminster Fuller, really named Richard Buckminster Fuller, he's one of my heroes, you guys should look him up, he did some amazing things, he says this, there is nothing in a caterpillar that tells you it is going to be a butterfly. We do not always know what is going to come to pass. But when God is involved in it, we can look at it with eager expectation, knowing that what God has planned will be miraculous and amazing and wonderful. And we can watch the unfolding of the story of the plan of God with great curiosity. I do not know yet what it is that God has planned for us but I do know this he has a plan and I am eager to watch it unfold with each of you so my prayer my deep wish is that we will have the courage to celebrate God's miracles in each other's lives 
that we will have the audacity to admit our own confusion when the unexpected occurs and that we will have the tenacity to remain curious as God's story unfolds among us. May it be so. Amen.